Well, good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. I guess some pastors get to go to Israel, some pastors get to speak at NBC, you know. No contest. So great to be with you today and uh, hang out with you this morning in God's Word. Uh, We've been in a series on the brink as we've been looking into David's life and realizing that his life is very similar to ours. There's constant crossroads that we come to where we're on the brink of something good or something not so good. And we have to make some wise decisions in how, who are we trusting in and how are we going to go. And today we're going to continue on this series as we look at the fact of David being on the brink of self-deception and a new beginning. As you came in today, there's some message notes in the back. If you want to grab one, you sure can, if you haven't gotten one yet. But today we're going to look into the fact of the reality that we all live with self-deception in some way. And that self-deception, if it's not dealt with, if it's not kept in check, it can destroy us. And uh, today we're going to look into David's life at one of the lowest points of his life and figure out what it was that got him to that point. Now I have to tell you today, this isn't one of those warm, fuzzy messages, okay? This isn't Pastor Brent cutting a lot of jokes today. I know, I know. This is going to be more in our face today, realizing that all of us are a lot like David in a lot of ways, where we are at the crossroads of some very, very important places in our life and what we do next can jeopardize or build us up. The story we're going to look at today is the story of David and Bathsheba. And if you've been around church very much, you know Bathsheba. Just that name, Bathsheba, okay, is kind of that connotation, that's the other woman. Bathsheba was the woman that David had an affair with, tried to cover it up in so many ways, made a mess of his life, and God had to deal with him to restore him. It was David's greatest disgrace, greatest denial and deception of his life. But the reality is that David, just like us, he did not just wake up one day and decide, today's the day I'm going to have an affair. Today's the day. I'm going to throw my life into the garbage. Today's the day I'm going to just make a whole mess of my life. But it was a gradual process. Sin didn't take David by surprise, but like many of us, he was a disaster waiting to happen. Because of some wrong choices, because of some wrong attitudes, because of things in his life that were leading him to this point of self-implosion. Success for David had left him vulnerable. And so as we look at this story today, we're going to look at it from a little different angle uh, of looking at what caused this. But for those that maybe just need a refresher on the story of David and Bathsheba, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm not necessarily going to read through the story with you this morning. I'm going to just kind of tell the story Uh, from 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12. But if you'd like to have your Bible open there, that's always kind of good just to see where we're at and where we're going with it. But these two chapters tell the sordid tale of, of David one night 
up on his rooftop wandering around, taking a stroll. You know, that's what you do. How many of you have done a stroll on your rooftop lately? Uh, Probably not. But in the Middle East, this was a common practice in the evening because as the heat of the day had cooled down, it was a great place to be just to get the evening breezes and just kind of refresh, kind of like we do on our deck or our patio. And David is out there strolling on his rooftop, which was probably one of the highest areas in the city of Jerusalem, and he's strolling and looking out, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And instead of just taking a glance and going, whoa, beautiful bathing, I'm going to go look this way, he kept his eyes focused on Bathsheba bathing. Now you go, why is a woman bathing on the roof? What does she expect? Well, in this culture at that time, you either bathed at the river or other little lakes and areas, or you had water cisterns and things where you would bathe on your roof. And so David sees this woman. Now, do you remember that old cartoon, Rocky and Bullwinkle? And they always had these little phrases every so often through the, car- through the cartoon with little truths and morals. Well, let me give you some this morning. These are kind of the pre-truths. These are pre-in-your-notes, okay? But here's our pre-moral. Don't stroll on your roof or your life may go poof, okay? Um, there's one to live by, okay? There's one to live by. But the story with David and Bathsheba doesn't stop there. David is entranced by her beauty and calls her into his chambers. And they indulge themselves for a night. In the morning, he sends her back out. And he thinks all's well. But in a little while, he gets word back from Bathsheba that she's pregnant. And that she's pregnant with his child. Now here's the difficult part. Bathsheba was a married woman. Married to one of David's right-hand men, Uriah. And here David, knowing who she was, knowing she was the wife of one of his right-hand military men, still went to her. And she brings word back to David she's pregnant. Well, here's the next um, truth that we can live by. Be sure your sins will find you out. David thought, I can just... You know, one night fling, who's it going to hurt? And all of a sudden, he finds himself in a difficulty. So David continues to scheme and think, okay, and you know what this is like. You know what it's like when you sin and you're kind of like, oh, I got caught here. I need to cover it up with what? More sin. Let me put more lies on top of this. And so David does that. He schemes and he brings Uriah home from the battle field and brings him home and says, Uriah, go home, be with your wife, enjoy some great relaxation, some good romance. I'll even send you my latest blue CD that's got some great jingles on it for you, okay? But Uriah does not go home. Uriah stays and in fact sleeps on the hard concrete streets. He stays right around the military barracks and doesn't go home. And David's like, Uriah, go home. Time and time again, David tells Uriah, go home. And Uriah says, I will not go home because my fighting men are still out on the field. They're sleeping in the open fields. They're sleeping on the rocks and the crags. How can I go home and sleep 
in my comfortable house with my beautiful wife when my men don't have that satisfaction. Wow, there's a guy for you. And David realizes all of a sudden that he's not going to get Uriah to go home. And so what does he do? He schemes again. And he sends Uriah back to the battlefield, but he sends him back with a charge, with a note to be given to his general, Joab. And in that note, David tells Joab, send Uriah to the front. Let him be one of the front guys on the battlefield. And when you get into the next intense battle, as the battle's raging, everybody else back off and let Uriah fight alone. And so Joab does that. He puts Uriah at the front. They go into battle. Everybody else backs off. And Uriah is slaughtered. After grieving for her dead husband, Bathsheba then goes and becomes David's wife. What a mess. What a mess. One more quick phrase. Covering it up only messes it up. And you probably lived that just like you, like I have. Covering it up only messes it up. Second Samuel chapter 12. The story takes a turn. David's like, okay, I've got her in my house. She's my wife. All this. We're going to just cover all over it. Say it, you know, just block it out. Hopefully everybody will kind of figure out what, you know, the right story here. And we'll just kind of get on with life. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David is confronted by Nathan, the prophet of God. And Nathan has been instructed by God to go to David and confront him about his sin. And David welcomes Nathan in as he had always done. And Nathan, as he begins to speak to David, begins with a story. He said, David, there was these two men. He said, there was this one man who had amazing wealth, and he had flocks and flocks of sheep. And then there was this peasant man on the other side who had just one sheep. He treasured that sheep. He cared for that sheep. He nurtured that sheep. It was almost like a pet to him. He loved his sheep. So one day, the rich man welcomed in some guests for a banquet. And looking over his flock, he said, you know what? I really like that sheep over there instead. And he goes and takes the poor man's sheep and slaughters it, butchers it, and uses that poor man's sheep for his guests. As Nathan's telling the story, David is getting physically upset. He is getting angry, and he finally says to Nathan, Who is this man? He must be brought to justice. And Nathan, you can almost imagine, looks right at David and says, you are the man. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, says, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had all been too little, I would have given you even more. 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Verse 11, he goes on, he says, This is what the Lord says. Out of your household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And you can read later on in the story of David and this actually happens. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. What is your response when you're confronted with sin? If you're like me, and like most of us, what do we do? We blame others. We, we deflate it. We say, oh, it wasn't that big a deal. We're like, oh, I couldn't help myself. But David, being the man God had called him to be, was man enough to take responsibility and say, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. What a sad state of affairs. As David was confronted by Nathan, you imagine what must have been going on in his mind and in his heart. Here's something he had probably already even kind of just put to rest and thought, you know, Okay, I fell, it was a bad thing, it wasn't right, you know, all this kind of stuff. But now that he's confronted with it, he's going to have to respond. What was David thinking? What was going through his mind? Well, the cool thing is, we have David's own words to give us an idea. Psalm chapter 51 is a psalm that David wrote at this very moment. In fact, if your Bible's like mine, it says this is a psalm of David written at the time of Nathan's confrontation concerning Bathsheba and Uriah. And this morning we're going to look at Psalm 51 to get a glimpse of what was going through David's heart and mind at this time of realizing his sin, but as well realizing what had brought him to this point and now what was going to get him beyond this. Psalm 51, I'm just going to read it and follow along in your Bibles. And just put yourself in David's shoes this morning. What would it sound like from your heart? He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you have proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, the Lord, the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open your lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Many messages have been preached on the sin-stained broken heart of David from this chapter. Songs have even been produced with these lyrics. But my goal today is to lead us back in David's life to what brought him to this point of crumbling and crashing. What was it in David's heart? What was it in his morality? What was it in his spirit that brought him to the point of living a double life? Living king of Israel, in a sense the religious ruler of his people, and at the same time having a double-minded heart so corrupt and so willing to commit adultery and then even murder to cover it up. Today we're going to just sit in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 51 and look at the reality as David cries out. He makes six cries to God in these three verses. And in these three verses, in these six cries, I think we get a glimpse into what it was that had begun the slippery slope for David to begin to slide and to fall into his destruction. The first cry David makes is, create in me a pure heart. Create in me a pure heart. If he's calling out for God to create in him a pure heart, he also had an impure heart. And here's what happens. An impure heart leads to an impure life. An impure heart leads to an impure life. David had been living impurely. He began to let his standards fall. He began to let his heart fall away from God's perfect and principal desire and value for him. He was slipping away from purity. He had begun to feed his heart the wrong diet. And so he becomes self-absorbed, pleasure over purity, self over others. And what fed this for him? Well, we can give a little bit of an idea. He probably was believing some of the reports about his greatness. If you remember the story when David had come in from battle, it said the people were crying out, Saul killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. We all know what it's like after a while. We start believing what everybody's saying about us. Boy, I am pretty good. Yeah, not so bad after all. And David had probably begun to do that. He had begun to get that feeling of being invincible. He was king of Israel. He was chosen by God. What could harm him? What could bring him down? He was king. He was king. He probably even was a little fatigued. As he'd been through so much, so many battles, so much just even politically, that he had allowed his heart to stray. And you know, friends, the same can happen to us. We can allow the purity of our heart to begin to be mixed and become impure. 
How does this happen? By what we feed our heart. What are we feeding our heart? Are we feeding it lust? Are we feeding it rage? Are we feeding it gossip? Are we feeding it selfishness? Or are we feeding it the joy of the Lord? Are we feeding it the fruit of the Holy Spirit? What are we feeding our heart? Now the obvious question is, how do you feed a heart, you know? You don't just stick a tube in and try to feed yourself through your heart. Your heart is, is fed by what you see, by what you hear, and by what you think on. Your heart is fed by what you are watching, by what you are listening to, by what you are thinking upon. And so David had allowed his heart, his mind, to be going in areas and ways that it shouldn't have. And he was beginning to reap things that he never thought he would reap. But let me tell you, friend, if you plant corn, what do you expect to get? You're going to get corn. The problem is, is when you plant corn and you expect to get wheat... And the same is true in our lives when we're planting impure things into our heart and into our mind. Why why are we so oblivious to why we're not having more of a pure heart? David had allowed himself and his heart to slide. And so David cries out, God, help me again to have a pure heart. Help me to feed it what I should be feeding it. Help me to be, God, who you've called me to be. The second cry of David in those verses is, God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Why? Because laziness leads to craziness. You know, Pastor Dave and his central truth, he's got nothing on this today. You know, he has one. I'm going to give you five or six here this morning. Laziness leads to craziness. David had gotten lax. Power and wealth had put him at ease. His dream coming true had left him vulnerable. In fact, if you look at 2 Samuel, back in the actual story in 2 Samuel, in chapter 11, verse 1, the preliminary verse to this whole story, it says, In the season and in the time when the kings were out in battle... David had stayed home and had charged Joab to go out with the army, and David stayed home. David as a king was to be out in battle. He was to be fighting alongside of his troops, but instead he had gotten a little lazy. He had gotten a little comfortable. He had gotten a little bit, you know what, I'm king now, I've got all this, I'm good. I'll let somebody else go out and fight my battles for me now. And instead of being where his army was and where he should have been he was at home walking on the roof of his house at night when he probably knew he might get a glimpse of a few bathing beauties he had gotten lazy he had gotten lax and he put himself in a place that would not only bring him temptation but had the opportunity to bring him to fall You just wonder, why didn't David have somebody around him that would have had the courage to stand up and say, David, you're king. Get out to battle with your troops. Don't just stay home and, you know, eat bonbons and have people drop grapes in your mouth, you know. Get out there. Be where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing. Every one of us need to have people in our life that are speaking truth into our life like that. People that are willing to say the hard things and go, hey, friend, hey, man, 
you know, I know you think this is probably the right way to go. I, I just don't see it. And I don't know if this is going to help or hurt your relationship with God. I think you need to be very considered about this. But David apparently had no one to do this for him. And so in his great fall, he cries out, God, renew in me again that steadfast spirit I once was. Forgive me that. Help me to get back on track. It's a prayer almost every day we need to pray in some way. God, help me to be on the track you have for me. The third cry of David is, do not cast me from your presence, O Lord. Do not cast me from your presence. See, what happens when our relationship with God becomes mundane, our life goes insane. When we just make church a church thing, it can become very easy to lose the intimacy with God that we need. And David was one of those guys, he had enjoyed such intimacy with God. He enjoyed such beauty and times together with God that one of his greatest fears is when he's confronted with his sin, he says, God, don't leave me. Don't leave me from your presence. David knew the reality of what sin does in a life. Sin separates man from God. And David said, don't leave me, God. Even in my sin, don't leave me. I can't go on without you. I wonder how many times in our own life when we're confronted with sin and we see sin in our own life, how many times do we cry out like that as well and say, God, don't leave me. I know my sin has separated us, but God, don't leave me. Too often we've got... And don't get me wrong, we need to be a church that preaches grace and God's love and God's cleansing and His forgiveness, and we believe in that wholeheartedly. But the only way you're going to truly ever understand grace fully is when you understand the depths of sin fully. And David understood what sin does. It separates us from God. And he had allowed sin to just creep into his life. And he realized all of a sudden, I have almost in a sense blown God off and I'm out of his presence. And David says, I need in your presence, God. Worship and intimacy with God had become mundane for David. And here's the scary fact. Here's a man committing offensive, offensive, blatant sins, not even just against God, but against humanity. And yet he was still coming and going on with life as normal until he was confronted with his sin. He was truly living the double-faced life. He was coming, as we would say, on Sundays, celebrating the time of worship together. He could have been as good as any of us doing the the mission, real with God, real with each other, real in the world. But yet in his heart, there was incredible sin. Too often we can let that happen to us. We come, we put on our smiling faces, we go about and do the church thing on the weekends, and we let sin rule and reign the the rest of the week in our lives. That's not the way it's to be. But for David, he realizes this, and what had become mundane now was priceless to David once again, and he cries out, God, don't, don't leave me. It's reminiscent of the words of Moses and the people of Israel, if you remember from the story of the book of Exodus. As they were getting ready to go into the, take on the enemies in the promised land and, and to take this new land of Canaan. And the children of Israel were just so messed up. They were just 
all over the place. And God finally said, you know what? You guys go ahead and take the promised land. I I don't want to deal with you anymore. You know, you guys go for it. I, I, I want nothing. And Moses and the people of Israel cried out to God and they said, God, if you don't go with us, we're not going. God, if you don't go with us, we're not going. And I would encourage us today, oh Lord, help us every day when we get out of bed, say, God, I'm not going to work unless you're going with me. I'm not going to school, God, unless you're going to school with me. God, I'm not going to get up and make those kids breakfast unless you're with me. Help, God. Hurry up. Get get me up, you know? God, I'm not going anywhere without your presence. David's cry, God, don't leave me to myself. Please do not cast me away from being in your presence. Cleanse me, heal me, even punish me. But God, don't leave me. God, don't leave me. The fourth cry of David is, he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not take your spirit from me. Why? Because when it's all me with little he, I'm a sorry sight to see. David had realized doing life on his own was not working too well. He had been living in his own spirit. He hadn't fed the spirit of God within him. David had become his own driving force and directing force of his life. And, you know, we've, this is an area I think especially in our modern world today we've got to be so careful of. To ask ourselves every day, who are we relying on in our life? We can become so self-capable that we gradually forget that everything we are and everything we have has been given to us by God. Everything. We can hope in our finances. We can hope in our jobs. We can put all of our trust in, in our political system. We can put our trust even in our military strength. But at the end of the day, who are you relying on? And David had to come to grips to realize God, I've been relying on myself rather than relying on your Holy Spirit and I need your Spirit within me. One of the greatest parts of a slippery slope leading to a crash is when all of a sudden we say, God, you can just stay over there. I'm good. I've got this now. And the fall becomes very apparent and very honest and open right before us. And so David cries, oh my God, don't take your spirit from me. I know I lived like I didn't need it for so long, but now I know I cannot live without you empowering me. God, I need your spirit. God, I need your spirit. Number five, David says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. See, when salvation becomes stale, it's very easy to bail. When our salvation just becomes, yeah, I got it, I'm good, mean God, it becomes very easy to bail. David had forgotten the salvation that God had brought him from. What once had been so fresh and so amazing had become stale and ho-hum. And this just made that slope even slicker as he began to slide down into his own destruction. David wasn't living in the joy of God's salvation David wasn't living out his life in a way that reflected from where God had brought him from. And let's be honest, it can become very easy in our lives to lose the freshness and the joy of our salvation. 
if we don't remind ourselves and be constantly mindful from where God has brought us. God had delivered David from lions and bears, from giants and armies, from poverty and even a jealous king. But David along the way had become at ease and had forgotten the salvation that God had truly brought him. Now, Pastor Errol and Pastor Dave are on the other side of the globe today, so I can pretty much say whatever I want to say. You guys okay with that? Because my next statement is this. I hope none of you ever become a good church-going Christian. I hope not one of you sitting here ever label yourself a good church-going Christian. But I pray within each of our hearts that we stay an overjoyed sinner saved by grace every day. Every day. Because when you get this idea, I'm just a good Christian now, I'm good, I'm, I'm just a float along. I, I, man, I even signed up for membership at NBC. I can even recite the statement in my sleep. Okay? You're at ease and you've lost the sharpness of your salvation. Every day, we need to be reminded from what depths God's grace has brought us from. And sitting around us today are all pictures of God's grace and the depths of sin that he has brought us from. And every once in a while, friends, we need to be reminded of that and not let salvation become routine in our life, but let it continually be a revolutionary force that changes us and changes the world around us. David's cry, Lord, will you please restore to me the joy of your salvation that I once lived in every day. Restore, Lord, to me that joy. Then finally, he says, God, grant me a willing spirit to, a willing spirit to sustain me. Because without a willing spirit, it's difficult to bear it. He says, God, give me the will to accomplish what you want to accomplish in my life. David had made serving God a task rather than a free-willing heart of worship. In the midst of great confession, agony, and self-reflection, David realizes that he needs God's sustaining power with him at all times. Not just on the battlefields, not just at the times of great kingly decisions. He needs God's sustaining power in his life at all moments and at all times. And so David cries out, and please, my God, will you grant me a willing spirit to sustain me every day and empower me every day. He finally realized that he couldn't do life without God. And it wasn't that David totally rebelled against it. It wasn't like he snubbed his nose and said, God, I don't need you anymore. I've got this. But through small little areas of his life, he went down that slippery, sliding slope that eventually brought him to the point of making one of the worst decisions of his life. We might say, great story of David. But the reality is it's a great story about all of us. Because we all find ourselves at times and in places where we get lax, where we lose the joy of God's salvation in our life, and we just kind of put it on auto-cruise and we lose touch with the reality of what God wants to do in our life. My life is like that. Back in 2000, 2001, there's my beautiful little family back then. I'm a few pounds lighter back then, but you guys have fattened me up well. Thank you. All right? 
made me the man I am. Um, I had a lot of great things going for me. Had a beautiful wife, beautiful family. We just purchased our first home, a little fixer-upper, and we'd fixed it all up, and it was awesome. I was pastoring my own little church in southern Minnesota. Just being in Minnesota, that's good enough. So, you know. But uh, all seemed to be, you know, well on the outside. But as a lot of you know, I'm a pretty driven person, and I... uh, type A kind of personality in a lot of ways, and I went overboard on what God had called me to do. And in a little church, you end up kind of doing everything. I was pastor, I was youth pastor, I was worship pastor, I was everything. Shoveled the driveway to get people in. But after a while, it came to a point where one morning, I woke up. And I can't explain it any other way than I just had this amazing feeling, God, I just want to die. I just want to die. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. I, I just couldn't imagine feeling that way and feeling like an elephant sitting on my chest. And I'm like, God, what's going on? I'm like, maybe I'm coming down with a bug or something. And I stayed in bed all that day and thought, man, this feeling is just not going away. Long story short, after many visits to medical doctors and psychologists, I'd been defined as what a lot of us have run into at times in life, a a breakdown and depression. And that didn't just happen overnight, even though the symptoms just showed up overnight. I had been living a life out of whack and out of balance. I'd thrown myself into God's work, into the church. I'd given everything. I was working crazy hours. I was doing everything because, you know, if you work hard enough, everything's po- anything's possible. And I was so busy doing God's stuff that I'd forgotten to be with God. I'd gotten so busy taking care of God's church, I'd forgotten to take care of the family God had given to me. And in those weeks, months, and years since, it's been an incredible wake-up call for myself to realize God isn't so valued about all the stuff I do in His name, all the stuff that I'm busy at, looking like I'm being prosperous. God is more interested in my heart. I almost lost everything. I almost lost my wife. almost lost my church if it wasn't for the graciousness of both of them. To help me walk through the many years of just putting myself back together with God's help. And I share that story with you this morning just to remind you we don't have to be David's. It's every one of us can get on a slope and on a path where we can get on the misdirection, and before we know it, we're beyond the point of no return. And the crash is inevitable. I prayed and prayed to God. God, why'd you do this to me? Just get me out of this situation. Just get me beyond this. This isn't hurt, helping anybody. This is just totally frustrating in my life. But God didn't just miraculously do that. But he had me walk through it. And the amazing thing was, as I look back, I've had the amazing, amazing privilege to sit with how many people 
that struggle with depression, that struggle with incredible anxiety, and sit with them and say, you know what? I kind of know how you feel. And so instead of letting this be something that totally disabled me, I said, you know what, God? Somehow use it. And that's what David did. If you read on in Psalm 51, verse 13, right after these six statements we made, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. He said, I'm going to take the hurt and the pain and the frustration that I'm facing right now. And with your healing, I'm going to use it as a tool to teach and to encourage others. And that's what he did, because transformation is not just for me, but it's for others. I love what CR says, God rarely wastes, God never, let me get this straight, God never wastes a hurt. No matter our hurt, God never wastes it and he uses it for his glory. As I've gone through this message this morning, you may be thinking, okay, some of this is kind of hit kind of close to home. What am I supposed to do now? Well, look at what David said in verse 16 and 17. He says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This morning, if you find yourself in one of those places where it seems like life is beginning to crumble, The greatest thing to do is to offer your crumbs and your broken heart to God and say, God, here I am. I need you. See, that's the message of the gospel. That's how the gospel intersects us right at those crossroads, right when the rest of the world would say, just throw up your hands and give up. It's worthless. God says, I'm going to come in and take your mess and turn it into a treasure. And that's what God's able to do in each and every one of our lives. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you today for the truth of your word and for the stories like David in your word that aren't just stories to listen to and be entertained, but they're stories, God, that you share to help us to learn and to grow. And I pray, O God, that you would help each and every one of us to take the words that we've heard today and allow your Holy Spirit to do the work that needs to be done in each of our hearts. Refine us, Lord. Make us more like you. Let nothing separate us from your presence, O God. And God, maybe today, in each of our hearts, Lord, may it be one of those moments again where we say, God, I need you. And Lord, you would respond. In Jesus' name.